0: Hi everyone, welcome to the Gospel Hour with Don. My name is Donald and today's topic is God's sovereignty and man's free will. Let's first talk about the sovereignty of God. What does the word sovereignty mean? It means supreme and independent power or authority. In other words, God is sovereign in the sense that he is supreme in power, he is supreme in authority, and he acts independently. Although the word sovereign is nowhere found in our authorized King James Version, the true Almighty God is indeed sovereign over the entire universe. Why? Because the concept is taught throughout the pages of Scripture. Consider some of these uh, passages I'm going to read. Exodus chapter 15, verse 18 says, The Lord shall reign forever and ever. End quote. Here's another quote. And said, The Lord God of our fathers, art not thou God in heaven, and rulest not thou over all the kingdoms of the heathen? And in thine hand is there not power and might, so that none is able to withstand thee. End quote. That's found in Second Chronicles chapter twenty verse six. Here's another one in Psalm sixty-six verse seven. It says, He ruleth by his power forever. His eyes behold the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Selah. End quote. Here's another verse, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15. It says, Which in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, the king of kings and the lord of lords. The word potentate means ruler or monarch or king. It means the one in authority. And also in Revelation 19, chapter 19, verse 6, it says, Alleluia! For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. And to reign means to rule. So these are just some of the, it's just a sample of the verses that teach the sovereignty of God. And clearly that that is taught in the Bible. And I could name, I could mention some more verses. But for the purpose of our study, I think that's enough. By God's sovereignty, we mean that God rules in the affairs of men and is under no external restraint. In other words, God is supreme in power, in authority, and in dominion. God created all things, and he is not subject to any power or being which could be conceived as superior to himself. And you can see that in other references. Romans chapter 9, verse 9 to 21, if you'd read that you'd see that there's no power that is superior to God. And in Romans chapter 9, verse 15, we read this, He saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore, he, therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Now, this shows God's sovereignty. But uh, without going into depth in these verses, God does what he wills, and he only wills though according to what is reasonable in his mind. So he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. In other words, his will is governed by infinite intelligence coupled with infinite benevolence and infinite wisdom. So he will have mercy on who he thinks deserves that mercy or should get that mercy. And of course, the Bible makes it clear that if we want mercy from God, that we need to meet the requirements. In other words, we've got to do our part. And in order to get God's mercy, we must confess our sin, we must repent of our sin, and we must believe on His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, if we want mercy. He made that very clear in His Word. So, will God do what He wants? Yes. But He never acts arbitrarily or without good reason. And then it says in verse 16, So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Well, who's the mercy giver? It's God. It's not the one who wills. It's the, the one who is abundant in mercy is God Almighty. So he's the one that gives the mercy. So the mercy comes from God. However, he will give it only when he sees it best and when when it is suitable to extend that mercy. And in God's mind, he already made it clear to us, when is it suitable for God to show mercy to sinners? It is when they repent. It's when they humble themselves. And then it says that he hardened Pharaoh's heart. Well, if you look in in uh, many other verses in, in uh, Exodus, you will find that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And you'll find that more than once. And that's how God hardens his heart he will allow us to do what we want and a lot of times when he just permits us to sin a hardening takes place so in that sense God hardens the heart so there is no be- being that is superior to god that's what we mean by sovereignty all forms of existence are with the scope are within the scope of his dominion And even the sinful acts of men are foreseen, permitted for a while, and used by him to carry out his overall purposes. And one example of this is the people who crucified Christ. Christ allowed it, but much good came through the crucifixion of Christ. What came through it is atonement was made for our sins so that God can forgive us because of that atonement, or through that atonement. So, good can come out of sin. And that's not always easy to believe or easy to see, but that is a fact. By God's sovereignty, we mean that he worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. That's found in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. And we also mean this, that he hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. And that's a verse that's quoted from Psalm 115, verse 3. It says, But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Well, God does what he pleases, but that doesn't mean he, he acts arbitrarily. He has good reasons for the way that he acts at all times. Now, his reasons may not be known by us, But he has his reasons and we have to just believe and trust that he knows best. God does as he wills, but he always wills according to his infinite love and his infinite intelligence. He does as he pleases, but he is never pleased to violate the laws of justice, of goodwill and of mercy as they exist in his mind. Though man has been given a degree of autonomy and power to make decisions, we do not assert that man is in any way close to being as sovereign as God is. Absolute sovereignty belongs only to God. The triune God, the tri-personal God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost—in other words, so God is the author of our being, and He is author of the of our power to sin, but He is not the author of sin. That's very important to know that. So, man is a self-determining being. In other words, he has free will. Having said that, we must assert that God is not so absolutely sovereign as to be the author of sin, as I already mentioned. And this is found in James chapter 1, verse 13. It says, Let no man say, when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. So as I said, God is the author of our power to sin, but not the author of sin. How could a holy creator originate something he hates with a perfect hatred? He really couldn't. So that proves that God is not the author of sin. And if in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 9, it says that God loves righteousness and hates iniquity. In Psalm. Chapter 5, verse 4, it says this, For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. So, we can see here that God does not take pleasure in iniquity. That means he hates it. Nor is God's sovereignty to be viewed in such a way as to make man a robot or an automation in his hands, or to be less than a free moral agent. So yes, God is sovereign, but man is a free moral moral agent. Our sovereign Lord and Savior does not grant saving grace or send revivals with that sort of sovereignty that does away with the use of human means and actions. In other words, conversions and revivals do not come like tornadoes or lunar eclipses. People have a direct and significant part to play in producing conversions and revivals, but not in producing storms or hurricanes or, or uh, lunar eclipses. We can't do that. God can, but we can't. An exaggerated and warped view of God's sovereignty, the idea that God does it all, will tend to produce mental laziness and inaction. It will tend to block revivals and keep sinners lost in sin. Like all other biblical truths, we must hold this truth in conjunction with the whole counsel of God. Now here, listen to what uh, Charles G. Finney said on on this matter. And uh, Charles G. Finney was a a great American revivalist of the 19th century. And uh, this is what he said concerning the abuse of God's sovereignty. Quote, And yet any direct effort to promote revival alarms some people. They cry out, You are trying to bring revival in your own strength. Watch out. You are interfering with the sovereignty of God. Better do things the way we always do and let God give revival when He thinks best. God is sovereign, and it is wrong for you to try to promote revival just because you think we need revival. And then he goes on to say this preaching is just what Satan wants. People can't do Satan's work more effectively. Than by using the sovereignty of God as a reason for not endeavoring to produce a revival. End quote. That's from Charles Finney. The most necessary things in life are obtained by applying the proper means. For example, the simplest way to get corn and beans to grow in a garden is to use the means of breaking up the fallow ground, planting the proper seeds watering, uh, feeding it, weeding it, and doing things like that, fertilizing. We have no right to expect a harvest of corn and beans unless we cooperate with nature and use the appropriate means. The same thing could be used, the same example could be used with, with beef or meat. God gave us cows. He gave us cattle. And enjoying meat involves a lot of human effort and human activity. Number 1, you got to raise those cattle. And then you got to butcher them. Then you got to cut up the meat. Then you got to cook it. And then you got to chew it. You got to do all that to enjoy that beef. Well, God gave the beef. Thank God for that, but he expects us to use the means in order to in order to benefit from uh, the gifts and the blessings that he's given us. The Bible is clear in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. It says, We will reap what we sow. This is true not only in things natural, but in things spiritual. Since spiritual blessings are of utmost importance, attaining them is most certainly connected with applying the right means and methods given to us by God. The divinely appointed means through which sinners can secure eternal salvation are by these. I'm going to mention some of the the means by which a sinner can become saved. Number one, he must seek God. The Bible says in Isaiah 55, verse 6, it says, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. In Jeremiah 29, Verse 13, it says, And ye shall seek me and find me, when ye shall search for me with all your heart. So that's one thing we must do if we want to be saved. We must seek God. Here's another thing we must do. We must hear or read the words of God. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word, and believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death, Unto life, that is from spiritual death, unto spiritual life. So, if you want spiritual life, you've got to do something to get it. What must you do? You must hear the word of God. That means, how do you hear? You got to go to hear somebody preach, turn on to a podcast like this one, or go go to church and listen to a good sermon from a pastor who is teaching faithfully the word of God. That's one way to hear it. The other way to hear it is to read it yourself read it out loud and you'll even hear it read the Bible and then you've got to believe on Christ and when you do that God will give you spiritual life so you see how the means are necessary we have to apply the means if we want the benefit here's another one confession of past sins Psalm 32 verse 5 David is speaking and he says I acknowledge my sin unto thee And mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. And thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. If you sin against God, confess it to God. I talked to a lady the other day, and she thinks that in order to be forgiven by God, She needs to go to a priest and confess to the priest and then she will obtain divine forgiveness. Well, I asked her, I said, okay, let's say you commit a sin and you're the only one that knows about it. Of course, God knows about it and you know about it. Why do you have to go to a third party and tell a priest about what you did? He can't, the priest has no power to really forgive you on behalf of God. The reason why is you've not sinned against that priest, or at least he's not aware of it. So we must confess our sins to those that we've offended. And if God is the only one that knows about it, then he is the one that we must confess our sins to. But if we want forgiveness or saving grace, we need to confess our sins, meaning acknowledge them and and admit that we've done wrong. Here's another thing we must do if we want to be saved. Repent. Repentance is really conversion from sin to God. It is turning away from sin. It's being sorry enough to change. Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. It says in Acts chapter three, verse 19. So um, if you want your sins blotted out, you must repent and be converted, according to that verse. Here's another verse that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. That word meet means fit or suitable for repentance. And this is what the Apostle Paul's taught in Acts chapter 26, verse 20. And he's speaking to heathen who were not regenerated, they were not born again. And he told these people who were not born again, he says that they, he said, he told them that they should repent and turn to God and do works fit for repentance. In other words, change their lives. That's absolutely essential to receive mercy from God. Here's another thing we must do, one of the means we must apply or a condition we must meet, faith in the words and person of Christ. We've got to believe His words. The Bible says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved And thy house. Notice it says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, you've got to believe that He is the Lord. That means He's the one in supreme authority. So we've got to act as though we really believe He is Lord. And how do you do that? Well, it's by submitting to His Lordship. Here's another thing we must do we must obey God's commandments. If we want eternal life, we must obey God's commandments. Matthew chapter 19, verse 17 says, But if thou will enter into life. Keep the commandments. Also in Hebrews 5, verse 9, it says, And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. There's that word obey. A lot of people like to say, well, to be saved, you need to believe. Well, that's true, but you also need to obey according to Hebrews chapter 5 here. Here's another good verse. It's in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7. It says, And to you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. Wow, those are strong words. But what, who is going to be punished with everlasting destruction? It's going to be those that know not God. And they don't know God because they don't care to know about God. So there's guilt there. And also it's those that do not obey the gospel. The gospel has terms associated with it. It's not only believe. We've got to obey the gospel. That means to obey the message of Christ because that's what the gospel is. It's the words of God, especially those found in the New Testament, but they're the words also found in the Old Testament. It's the words of God and how... it's The word gospel means good news. So if you want to be saved, you must obey the gospel. Here's another thing we must do if we want to uh, receive salvation and saving mercy. We need to continue in faith and obedience. It's not enough to begin the Christian life. We've got to continue in it. In Mark chapter 13, verse 13, it says, "And, And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. So that enduring unto the end speaks of perseverance. We have to persevere unto the end. Persevere in what? Persevere in believing in Christ and persevere in obeying Him. Here's another verse, John. Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 31. If ye continue in my word, then are you my, then are ye my disciples indeed. That means you are my true disciples. And by the way, If I'm not a disciple of Christ, I'm really not a Christian because the disciples of Christ were called Christians first in Antioch. The word Christian, I think, is found in three or four times in the Bible, only four times at the most, maybe three times, I'm not sure. The fact that God is sovereign does not mean that all his desires and wishes for mankind will come to pass. He does not desire or want his modern-day church to be lukewarm or to fall away, for he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's a verse quoted, part of the verse, from 2 Peter 3, verse 9. Although God has foretold of the present-day moral decline, he is certainly not wanting it, he's not causing it, and he's not approving of it. God is only allowing people on earth to do as they will for a short time while, and that short time is in his mind as long as he thinks best while he imposes a limited amount of restraint. But it's limited according to his perfect knowledge and his perfect wisdom. The falling away of the church will help to bring on the man of sin. This falling away of God's people and the appearance of the man of sin, who would be the beast of Revelation 13, by the way, the appearance of this man of sin is not God's perfect desire or wish, but it is certainly part of his overall plan whereby he will ultimately bring glory and honor to himself. Christ will return to earth to punish all unrepentant sinners and this will prove to the universe that God is indeed sovereign and the supreme ruler over his creation. So God allows things to take place that he does not approve of. Now some will say, there are some people who've been sinning five years straight and others I know who have been sinning for 30 years, and others they've been sinning all their life for 70 years and they're still living and they seem so happy. And it seems like God is like they're getting away with sin and God's not going to punish them. Well, think of it this way let's take 70 years. To us, that's a long time, but to God, that's like two, three minutes. Because the Bible says that one day, With God is like a thousand years to us. A thousand years to us is like one day to God. So if you think somebody's getting away with sin for 70 years, that's not really a long time in God's mind. God is basically saying to us, wait a few minutes and he will get what is due to him. So there is justice. It just doesn't come on our timetable. But that's because we live within the context of time. God doesn't. So we got to realize that God is sovereign. And though people are getting away with sin now, and it seems like they're they're getting away with it for a long time, well, to God, it's not a long time. So long as man is unwilling to respond to divine pleadings, no sovereign act of God will save the sinner or produce holiness in the saint. In other words, every person will... Be only as holy as he chooses to be. And every person will uh, that will be in hell will go to hell and will be there by reason of his own choices. And so it's our choice that brings us to hell. And it's our choices that make us virtuous also. Every time we sin, it's because we corrupt ourselves. It's because of our choice. We choose to do it. So, this belief does not elevate man too highly, nor diminish God's glory and perfections one bit. God does whatsoever he pleases, but we also believe he was pleased to give man the powers of choice, even though he foreknew that man would abuse those powers and invite his wrath. The abuse Of our powers of choice is called sin. Sin is the voluntary transgression of God's law. And it's the known and voluntary transgression of God's law. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin, it says in James chapter 5. So we can see that sin can and does exist in a universe that is ultimately controlled and dominated by God. When I say ultimately, I mean in the end, it is controlled and dominated by God. God is able to bring glory to himself in spite of the sin that has entered his domain contrary to his will. Among other things, it was through the entrance of sin that God was able to show himself to be full of grace, mercy, and power. Because of sin, our Savior God was able to show an aspect of himself that we perhaps may not have known if sin had not occurred. Sin is what made the atoning sacrifice of Christ on the cross to be necessary. However, it is not sin that we glory in, but in the cross by which sin is taken away. That's what we glory in. Can we now see how something contrary to God's will, like the entrance of sin, can be used by him and finally overruled to accomplish his good purposes? You see, why do you think everybody in heaven is gonna be so filled with thanksgiving to God and to Christ, and will worship Christ? It's because Christ has shown them so much mercy in coming to die for us, and in preserving his word for us. And in the thousands of ways that God has shown his goodness to us. That's why we're going to be praising and honoring God for all of eternity. Because he's been so good to us. Is God the sovereign and supreme ruler over all his creation and creatures? He surely is. But the best way for us to demonstrate our belief in his supreme control is not by holding to exaggerated views of his supreme control, but by our consistent submission to his will. That's how we prove that we believe God is sovereign. It's when we obey him. Jesus said, and why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? He said that in Luke chapter 6. Here's another way to show that we believe in the God and and to render conspicuous His sovereignty. The Bible says in Matthew 5, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works, that they may glorify your Father which is in heaven. You see, we should do good works for the purpose of glorifying, glorifying God. So how do we glorify God? How do we render Him magnificent and full of splendor. It's by our good works. That's how we prove that we believe in God's sovereignty. It's when we do good works. Now, we do good works and we don't mind if men see them. But remember, if we do good works in order for us to be seen and in order for us to receive glory, then that would be a sin. We must do good works so that God will receive glory and also so that we can benefit our fellow man because we want to point people to the true God. So that's how we prove that we believe in the sovereignty of God. It's by obeying him. It's not by having exaggerated views of God's sovereignty. So that's the sovereignty of God. Now let's talk about the free will of man. The word free will means the power of directing our own actions without restraint by necessity or fate. That's a definition I got from Webster, his old dictionary, 1828. So man is a moral agent. He has power to will, decide, and act according to known obligation and power also not to... to, to uh, fulfill his obligation. So we have the power to obey God and we also have the power to disobey God. And this is clearly taught in the Bible. I'm in Luke chapter 9 and verse 23 and it says, And he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it but whosoever will lose his life for my sake the same shall save it see the word will here in these two verses is found in, uh, three times it begins if any man will come after me see if you're going to come after Christ it's going to require an act of your will which implies of course that we have free will because he's commanding our will here Here's another verse. It's in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 2. It's the marriage of the king's son. It's a parable. And in verse 2 it says, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding and they would not come. So here you could see that It's not that they could not come. It's not that their will was so much in bondage that they could not choose to come to the wedding. They just chose not to come. But they were invited. They were bidden to the wedding. That means they were invited. And that's what God does. He invites us to come to him. But the choice is ours to make. And you can see that the Bible recognizes that everyone has free will. Also, in the next chapter, in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 37, Jesus is preaching to the Jewish people and he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings? And ye would not. It's not that they could not. It's not that there was some uh, pre-existing predetermined will of God that they could not come. No, they would not come. I believe God wants everyone to be saved. That's why he died on the cross, for everyone to be saved. So the fact that man is a moral agent cannot be denied by rational minds. In fact, it is a self-evident truth Even though people may deny that man has a free will, in theory, believe me, they know they have free will. Everybody knows that they have the ability to choose between right and wrong. God does not force or coerce anyone to come to him, nor to stay with him. Instead, God calls, as we already read, he invites, he beseeches, he persuades, and he commands. With God's help, sinful man is naturally able to change his mind and begin to trust and obey God. This ability was known by the Apostle Paul for he commanded people, he commanded unsaved people. He says this, he commanded all men everywhere to repent. So he knew that everyone had free will and he commanded them to repent so repenting and turning to god is something that everyone is naturally able to do that's why if they don't do what what they're naturally able to do that's why it's so sinful that's why it's a crime to oppose god every conscious and morally accountable mind has volition or maybe i should say every conscious mind has volition And every morally accountable mind that is conscious has moral volition. In other words, he has the faculty or power of willing according to moral law. Now, an infant cannot will according to moral law because it doesn't know the difference between right and wrong, an infant. They can make choices, but they cannot make moral choices because they're not morally accountable and Somebody has asked me the other day, when is the age of moral accountability? Well, I'm gonna have to leave that to God's omniscience. I don't know the answer to that, but God knows. And it's not my business, it's God's business to deal with those in those matters. But it's my business to train my children to obey God and to love God and to obey mom and dad. That's the job of parents to teach them the way of God and the word of God. The human mind is free. In other words, it's able to choose to do good or to do evil. It's free to choose to receive Christ or free, and it's also free to reject him. The fact that the sinner's conscience is disturbed when he does wrong is proof that he was free and able to do right, but simply chose not to. The fact that many feel guilty for sins they have committed confirms that they could have avoided those sins, but did not. Also, the fact that God rewards the just and punishes the unjust goes to to show that we are all responsible creatures endowed with the potential to choose between right and wrong. Here's a quote God does not crown those who abstain from wickedness by compulsion, but those who abstain by choice, End quote. And that was a quote from Clement of Alexandria. He lived a long time ago in the early stages of the church. And that's a, a good statement. God does not crown those who abstain from wickedness by compulsion, but those who abstain by choice. How could our Lord derive pleasure from an obedience that is pre-programmed, forced, or inevitably pre- predetermined? God could not derive pleasure from that. It'd be kind of like having a doll. And I remember in the old days they used to have a doll. you pull the, spurt, the string and the doll, the doll would say, I love you. Well, that's that doll is not acting out of free will. That doll is not a free moral agent. That doll is just a robot, you could say. It's an auto, it, It's something made. It's it has no will. And so, therefore, you're not going to find that much pleasure when that doll says, "I love you," but when a person says, "I love you," and when a person chooses to love you and you know that they're tempted to do otherwise, then you know that they really love you because they're making the right choice. Fatalism. Let's talk about fatalism. This is a doctrine that events are fixed in advance for all time in such a manner that human beings are powerless to change them. That's a definition from the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. And fatalism is is a false doctrine, of course, because not, you know, we all have free will on this earth. And John Calvin, who was an influential teacher in the 1500s, he taught fatalism in some way or another, not totally, of course, but he had some elements of fatalism in in his way of understanding the scriptures. And um, so, although very good in many points, Um, I believe he was flawed in in that way of thinking. And it's very interesting. If you read the Bible, you will find many verses that teach God is sovereign and God is the supreme ruler and that God is the controller of this world. Many verses teach that. But many verses also teach that man has free will. And I've already mentioned some of them. John Wesley aptly said this, and he was basically the founder of the Methodist movement. And he said this, quote, If Indeed, he says this, quote, Indeed, if man were not free, he could not be accountable either for his thoughts, words, or actions. If he were not free, he would not be capable either of reward or punishment. He would be incapable either of virtue or vice, of being either morally good or bad. If he had no more freedom than the sun, the moon, or the stars, he would be no more accountable than they. Yea, and it would be as absurd to ascribe either virtue or vice to him as to ascribe it to the stock of a tree. End quote. I just thought that was w- well said. I want to conclude with some of these remarks. God is indeed the sovereign, the supreme ruler, Of the universe and man is indeed free and able to make moral choices both comment both concepts are biblical both are true and both are reasonable they don't contradict each other i don't believe so they may seem to contradict each other in our minds but remember we have finite minds god is infinite They don't contradict themselves, definitely, in the mind of God. The idea is that a sinner, due to his total depravity, can do nothing for his own salvation. The idea that Jesus died only for the elect and not for all people. The idea that man is irresistibly predestined. And that a person once in a state of grace cannot forfeit that state of grace by going back into sin. All these ideas are unscriptural. They're destructive. They're not biblical. I believe the opposite is true. Yes, we are totally depraved when we sin. Sinners who are not born again are totally depraved. But being totally depraved doesn't mean they can't repent. And they can't believe in Christ and turn their life around. We all can do that. That Jesus died only for the elect, only for a chosen few, few and not for all people, that is not biblical at all. Jesus tasted death for every man, it says. And he made atonement for every man, it says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. It's very clear. He didn't only die for us, but he died for the sins of the whole world. That man is irresistibly predestined? Well, that's not true because if that would be the case then God is pretty mean because there's a lot of people going to hell in this world. A lot of people are living rebellious lives. Are we going to blame God for the fact that they're not saved or are we going to blame them? It's much better to impeach God's power than to impeach his character. And I do I believe God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's his character. God loves us all. But there are just some things God chose that he will not do, and that is to interfere with our freedom of choice because he made us as free moral agents made in the image of God. If God would be less than sovereign over the universe, he would never have dared to make man with free will. But the fact that God made man with free will is proof that God is sovereign. Even though man has, even the devil had free will at one time and the devil blew it, but God is sovereign. Here's a good verse in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. To me, that puts it so well. The secret things, the plans in God's mind, it's not my business to worry about what God does and what God did a million years ago. That's not my business. My business is to simply uh, choose to comply with my duty as it is revealed in God's Word. I've got to learn to mind my own business. And if we would all mind our own business and just trust and obey God, this world would be a great, great place. We don't have to worry about who's the chosen one and who. Who was predestinated before the foundation of the world? Now that is a truth. God does say that that uh, that the saved people have been predestinated before the foundation of the world. And what that basically means is God foreknows the decisions we're going to make, and uh, He knows He He foreknows what we're going to do, and so therefore, in God's mind, He knows whether we will persevere unto the end or not. So therefore, God in eternity past knew who would believe and persevere. He foreknew that. And of course, He did everything in His power to save us by sending His Son, Jesus, to die. Here's a good verse, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. Who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge, unto the knowledge of the truth. Okay, now, He will have all men. That's the old King James. And that word will can mean and often does mean he wishes, he desires to have all men to be saved. Because we obviously know that all men will not be saved. That would be universalism, which is not a biblical truth at all. The only ones that would be saved will be those that believe. But he wishes to have all men to be saved. That's why he died for us. He sent his son Jesus to die for us. Here's another good verse, I already read it, but I'll read it again. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is not willing that any should perish. He wants us all to come to repentance. That's why He preserved His words. The Bible is preserved for us right now in the year 2023. And lastly, I want to close with this verse. It's in Revelation 22, verse 17. It says, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. It's it's our choice. May God help you to make the right choices and to believe in Christ. Submit your will to him. God bless you. Thank you for listening.